Hi, flamethrowers. Lindsay Gibbs here. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. So excited today to be joined on the show by Jessica Luther and Shireen Ahmed. Hi, friends. Hello, Lens. So later in the show, we're going to be doing what I call a March Madness Redux. I know it's April, but um, we're going to kind of be going over some big stories that happened in March and early April from basketball to hockey to tennis that are important, but that it was easy to miss because, well... The madness. But first, I guess the biggest sports story over the weekend was the Masters. Did either of you watch the Masters? I know we're not really a golf podcast. <laughs> that would be a no from me. That would be a no. Cool. This was a great opening topic then. It was a whole thing here because apparently the man who won, who I would have to look his name Scotty up. Scotty Scheffler. Scotty Scheffler. From yeah. Dallas. From like ritzy Dallas Highland Park where Clayton Kershaw and Matt Stafford are from. He went to UT, lots of hook 'em things in my timeline. So I definitely saw that that man won the Masters. You're welcome. Um, I don't know anything about the Masters except for they wear green blazers. I did not watch it. Is this even where they wear blazers? Yeah, you got it. It is. Okay. You got it. So, yeah, I did not watch it, but I'm sure it was fun. Tiger is interesting. He was the most interesting thing, I think, for the casual of us. I feel like in the men's golf, it's all like the Commonwealth obsessed because I'm looking at the scores and it's like Australia and Ireland and other than the USA, obviously. But this person, McElroy, I don't even, is that Wales? I don't even know what that flag is. Do you not know who Rory McElroy is? That's my new favorite thing about Shereen. I know, that's amazing. <laughs> I have no idea who this man's is. That is amazing. Oh, he's from Northern Ireland. Oh my God. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I did not know that. So- I learned something today. He's the guy that treated Caroline Wozniacki poorly, is how I think of him. Yeah, but now now we kind of like him because he's kind of grown in, up to an interesting human being. Okay. But he did break off his engagement with, with Wozniacki the day after they sent out their wedding invites. So that was a whole thing. Um, I hold grudges, so that is my... <laughs> That's just how we do golf on so the show. That's, that's how we do but, golf. Okay, I actually watched the end of it. So, like, Rory had a really good round, and he wasn't really in contention, but then he shot, like, seven under on the day and got to second place. But, like, on the 18th hole, he hit, like, a chip-in for birdie from the sand trap, which, like, is really hard to do. And then um, the roar was just crazy. And then right afterwards, his playing partner did the exact same thing so they had like back-to-back chip-ins for uh birdies to end their round and it was a really cool moment um that was really fun to watch and then uh even though i didn't know i was like who's scotty shuffler and i was like oh he's the world number one but apparently he's come on the scene (laughs) very recently so it's not bad that i didn't know that so burn it all down is not behind on the golf we got the blazers only really like a few weeks behind we're really not that behind at all but anyways it would be nice if uh they would let the women have a major at augusta but you know it's only 2022 we can't ask for too much As most of you know, I've spent the last month laser focused on the Women's March Madness Basketball Tournament. I was very lucky I got to go from the 
first four in Raleigh all the way to the championship in Minnesota. I was at every round. And it's been incredible, but I've also missed a lot of other stuff <laughs> uh, while I've been at the tournament. So the point of this segment, which we call... Uh, you know, recapping the madness is going to be for to talk a little bit about my experience at the women's NCAA basketball tournament, especially the final four. But also, uh, Shereen and Jess are going to take us down some lanes of hockey and tennis. They were also having their own versions of March Madness. So uh, I just want to say that I, I did get COVID at the final four as well as it was like a super spreader event. And it is uh, hard to completely separate that from my experience right now as I'm sitting here with very, very bad brain fog. Um, but it was a bucket list item to be able to kind of be at so much of the women's basketball. I was at the Greensboro Regional. So the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight in Greensboro where Dawn Staley um, and the South Carolina Gamecocks were the the top seed. So I got to spend kind of two weekends in press watching Dawn Staley lead the way. And I think that's, that's what I'm going to take away the most from this. Obviously South Carolina won the championship beating UConn um, in the final four. UConn beat Stanford and um, South Carolina beat Louisville. But I got to say like Dawn Staley's intentionality is something to watch. She pays attention to every piece around her and gives it care. If we're doing metaphors, she waters that ground, that flower bed, every single you know inch of it. That's how she built up such a huge community of fans in South Carolina, basically from scratch. They didn't have a big basketball tradition before she got there. And her, her games were selling out before they won their first national championship in 2017 because she invested so much in the community. And to watch the local media and the band and the fans, the way they like rally around the team and the way Don Staley calls them out and appreciates them. It's really special. I think it just goes to show how much intentionality and care, like, like she's a brilliant coach, phenomenal recruiter, great ambassador for the game, but also just seems to like give a shit about people in and out of her life <laughs> on a daily basis. And it was, it was cool. Uh, I don't, I'm not here to bash Gino. We know I've had complicated feelings about him, but anyone trying to deny like what Gino's done for, and you kind of done for women's basketball is dumb as hell. And also UConn's not done. I don't know if you've seen that they have Paige Beckers and AZ Fudd. So like they're going to be back in the final four again. They're probably going to win again. But I think it was a really cool passing of the torch almost moment, you know, with Dawn getting her second in four years um, and beating Gino's team. You know, Dawn is now the face of women's basketball. And how cool to have a black woman in a southern conservative state leading a program with the fearlessness that she does. Uh, it's a cool moment. Lindsay, thank you for all of that. I did just want to add one thing about Dawn Staley. She said to me when she accepted the championship trophy that it was all predestined. And that sat with me for a long time. Like she brought a lot of her own personal spiritual presence. She also did it in a $5,000 jacket, which I thought was amazing. But she really, when you talk about Don Staley's intentionality, that really hit me hard. 
She's like the Lady Danbury of women's basketball. <laughs> oh, no. To Lindsay's point about how she waters every inch, like one of the great things she did is in that acceptance of the trophy and, and the championship is named all the players who don't really make it off the bench, right? Like she wanted to give everyone, even on her team, that little bit of shine in that moment. And I just... She's very good at this in a way that really captures your heart, uh, especially as a fan of women's sports where we don't see that kind of coverage um, of even bench players, right? She made sure that we were paying attention. Lindsay, I did want to ask, because you were in the arena for the semifinals and the finals, and they had they had very different energy, uh, to say the least. Uh, the semifinals were weird. They felt weird on TV. And I felt a lot better when you tweeted that there was weird energy for the semifinals. The final, though, hits like I you could feel it coming through the television. So like, what do you think was going on there? Yeah, I have lots of theories. But um, first of all, I just I do not get priority seating at these things, which is fine. Although I got it's, it sucks how hard it is not to get sometimes sucked into the hierarchy of media that exists at these things. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I was the third to last person on the seating chart and I was in like a dungeon and I was next to a guy who only covers sports from North Dakota and there were like nobody from North Dakota playing. And then another guy who was clearly on something um and like just there for a friend so these were just like it's i just it's just it's hard not to get sucked in right mm -hmm. and the seven people next to me who were technically before me on the seating chart all didn't even care enough to show up so it was just like i was just like all right okay cool we're here this is great did you have to stay there or did you move i moved eventually um during the semis, I didn't know if it was because of where I was sitting, right, that everything felt so weird to me. But um, I, I really think it's mainly neutral sites are hard. <laughs> like, mm. And the way the Final Four is set up, it's one ticket for both semis, right, like back to back. So as a lot of people buy the tickets, not having a rooting interest just to be there. And if you do have a rooting interest, likely it's only in one of the two games, right? And, the, you know, there were four really big programs, so there wasn't, like, a big underdog story to get behind. Um, besides Paige Beckers being, you know, from Minneapolis, there wasn't, like, you know, a home team. And none of the teams were even from close by to Minneapolis, right? So I just think it was, like, a little bit of the whole structure of it is weird. And it's why I'm actually – I know these uh, – our big topic conversation, I should say, was whether the first rounds should remain – that the top four seeds are hosting or move to neutral sites. And I actually think this goes against the grain. A lot of people think, I think they should stay at the top four seeds. I think it is maybe, maybe move it to just the top eight. I don't know. But A, I think it makes the regular season more interesting because getting the four seed above a five seed is a huge, mm. huge deal because you get to host that first weekend of games. And I like anything that makes the regular season count just a little bit more. But also the atmosphere is so good because you do have like a local crowd and it's hard to get that. So uh, I, I think that's why. That's my theory is it's just the weirdness of a neutral site. And sometimes uh, it's hard to translate into energy. I really appreciate you spelling out for a lot of our listeners who don't, who may not know and understand how all that works. And I think the behind the scenes here, this is a bit of a BTS with Lindsay Gibbs on the final four. I think this is really great. One of the other things I wanted to ask, because you do, you talk about 
coverage. And I just wanted to say, and it's me again, hello, the Canadian interjecting with a Canadian point. But TSN did cover the final four. Claire Hanna, a dear who's been on the show. She's a flame for She's a dear friend. She and your selfies with her are gorgeous, by the way. Loved her. Loved her. But she was there to cover it. And she, it was, she said it was like the assignment of a lifetime because of the energy and everything that was amazing. But also, ironically, U Sports, the Canadian version of the NCA, had our women's basketball championship that same night of the final, which wasn't covered. It was streamed. But I just find that really interesting that how, you know, looking at at it. Major sports networks in this country don't even cover our own national championship. And the, we announced that last week, the Ryerson Rams won. Uh, you know, it, it's incredible. I was so excited. I actually teach at that institution. So it's very exciting. But I didn't even know. And I was watching the American Final Four women's college thing, not even my own. And like, you know, I want you to expand a little on that. And I want people in Canadian broadcasters and universities to take notes now. Yeah, I think it's very interesting because I noted and I wrote in Power Plays about how this was the most covered Final Four ever. Like, I started noticing this in Greensboro for the regionals. The last regular tournament was 2019, and I'd been at the Greensboro regionals. And there was an ESPN reporter there who was actually usually an NFL reporter, but he was there, you know, and then there was an AP reporter and no other national media. All their media was like local to the teams or, you know, women's basketball centric media. Um, Whereas this year there was Sports Illustrated, Washington Post, New York Times, uh, The Athletic, uh, all these national outlets. And, you know, I did the digging and it's like between 2019 and now, all of these outlets dedicated more people to the Final Four, sent more people to the regionals, dedicated more resources to covering it. I think it goes to show that, like, how influenceable everybody in media is. Do you know what I mean? Like, one of the things I noted was that the reason this struck me as such a hopeful thing was because it wasn't one organization making a change, right? It was media centers, newsrooms across the continent, you know, making the same decision. And look, like, if the New York Times has three reporters at an event it's going to signal to other places that this is something that we should cover, that this matters. So none of these are happening in a vacuum. Now we just need that energy carried elsewhere, right, to other women's sports, and we need the momentum to continue. It's not an easy thing to do because there should be enough to fully cover the NCAA women's basketball and the, the Canadian sports, right? It shouldn't be in competition. For now, it's a win because you got one event that's been built up all these years almost to the proper coverage level, right? But – there's a long way to go, and there are more events that deserve this type of coverage. So I have another question. Last year, there was a lot of hullabaloo about the weight room. Was it better this year, Lens? Well, yes. I mean, you know, the weight room was really a symbol after all because uh, they weren't at a neutral site, right, like for the whole tournament. So, you know, they were mainly using the weight rooms at the sites where they were and no problems there. Um, overall, there were some cosmetic changes this year, as we talked about in an earlier episode. You know, it was officially March Madness. There was a first four. There's some things to be positive about. But what really got me excited this year was that these head coaches, mainly Don Staley, Tara Vanderveer, um, Courtney Bankhart at UNC, and um, head coach of Longwood, the number 16 seed, Rebecca Tillett, who talked about the unit, which is – the payout that the NCAA gives 
men's programs for making the NCAA tournament, but doesn't give to the women's tournament. And that's really the root of all of this. And um, I, I found it very promising that a lot of powerful coaches, uh, mainly the female ones, I must know, I did not hear the men coaches women's basketball call this out as much. Um, the unit is what needs to change. So they made sure that that stayed in the headlines, which I, I thought was a very promising sign. Linz, I wanted to know after going to this final four, did it change where you stand on the possible combining of the men's and women's final four at this point? No, women's final four stay standalone for now. It is pretty damn awesome to be in a downtown center and have (laughs) signs for women's sport everywhere you go and to have every bar talking about women's sports and knowing that the women's tournament is there and matters. That's worth preserving for now. What a special, special thing. All right. Now I want to go on to some of the stuff that I missed. Maybe you missed too. Shireen, can you tell me about the Isabel Cup? Because I was so sad that I missed that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so the Isabel Cup happened during the women's basketball tournament. So there's a lot of sports going on and a lot of stuff happening. And I was doing some PWHPA coverage as well and then doing this and shifting over. So basically, the Premier Hockey Federation uh, season ended in Florida. So those teams of the PHF ended up traveling down to Florida, a place called Wesley Chapel, um, and they played at the Advent Health Center. And I was kind of sad because had it been a little closer, I might have gone. But also, Florida isn't synonymous with women's hockey. But this is about infrastructure, and it's about availability, and it's about what they could do. And honestly, for a lot of the players that I saw, they vacationed after in Florida. So it was convenient for them. But anyways, all this to say is that the Connecticut Whale ended up playing the reigning champs, Boston Pride, for the Cup on Mon- on that Monday night. But at the end of the regular season, the Connecticut Whale, who are coached by Colton Orr, who is a former NHLer, were in the number one seed. Toronto Six was number two. I was very hopeful. I was very excited. And Mark Jocelyn is the coach of the T6. And then Boston Pride was ranked number three after regular season. They're coached by Paul Mara, who's a storied NHL defenseman. There was upsets for sure because the Boston Pride walked away with the championship. And it was, okay, I'm trying really hard not to be like, I don't like Boston because of my nature and history of hockey, just Boston sports teams. And I try not to let that seep into women's (laughs) hockey because like I really respect these teams. But it's Boston, y'all, it's Boston. So they they weren't expected to win? Like that was an upset. That definitely they were ranked third after regular season, and this is tournament play, right? So huh. I really thought the whale was going to win it. I, you know, like I don't know anything about Connecticut except I think who's the boss was based there in the comedy series. Like I, and they, everyone commutes to, and ESPN is there. Like I don't Your know. Afraid is the most interesting place. You're a UConn <laughs> fan. Shereen. I am, but like, like I think stores, right? <laughs> oh my god! But like when I first think of Connecticut, you that's think of who's I, the boss. <laughs> Before UConn women's basketball, like that's the weirdest. Gino's the second. Tony, I know Tony Dance is terrible, but I watched a lot of that show, so I thought. Anyways, my point is, 
Connecticut, I was like, I want this for them because they work hard. They also have a like they have a team that's been building and building and and, and women's hockey. That, that's not always that consistency, right? I wanted this for them. I also really, really wanted the six to win because like I was there their last game at home. I watched them. That back pass from Cheyenne D'Arcangelo was amazing. Uh, for people that don't know, when you go into the PHF rules or if you go into overtime, you play three on three. It's riveting. And I really wanted the six to win, obviously because of Soraya Tinker as well. I have her jersey, but they did it. And I was like, what the hell? So second year in a row, PHF, our uh, champions are the Boston Pride. Yay. Shereen, like one of the few things I heard around this, there was a report, yes, about one of the owners of the Boston Pride. This is a very burn it all down turn that I'm making here, but not great, right? Yeah, this was, and and I do want to say shout out to Alex Azzi of NBC from On Her Turf for chasing this story for literally, she DM'd me and said, you need to see this. I was in Peterborough this, that weekend. I was covering the PWHPA that the flamethrowers heard about. So I, I wasn't tuned in specifically, but I was like, what the fuck? So here's this lowdown, friends. John Boynton is part owner of the Boston Pride. He's also co-owner of the Metropolitan Riveters, a PHF team as well. So this man owns a lot. So the Boston Pride are owned and operated by, and this is from Alex Azzi's article now, by BTM Partners. It's a company founded by John Boynton. In addition, is serving as the chairman of the PHF's Board of Governors. Boynton is also the chairman of Yandex, Russia's largest technology company. It has been compared to Google, right? So it has ties to the Kremlin. And it has been, and this again from the article, has been accused of suppressing factual information and promoting propaganda related to Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. Earlier this month, Yandex executive and director and deputy CEO Tigran Khudaverdian was sanctioned by the European Union after he attended a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin on the same day that Russia invaded Ukraine. So on her turf, I know Alex reached out to both Boynton and PHF for comment about the ongoing war. Boynton did reply about the PHF's future, uh, but didn't address anything about Yandex or Russia's war in Ukraine. And PHF didn't reply to Honor Turf. Uh, PHF is currently without a commissioner because Tyler Timinia stepped down after the championship. So they don't have a commissioner and they have a shady ass investor in this. And I'm a huge lover of women's hockey. The PHF has some incredible movement, um, you know, combating structural racism and changing their name as a league to, to recognize all the players. Like these are big, big steps. But also... You know, it's important to be transparent at everything, <laughs> not just some things. And like, I find this like, yeah, we're excited that there's so much money, 25 million being invested. But where's that money coming from? And this isn't just me being salty because it's Boston, because I actually, you know, uh, like appreciate the Riveters. We talked about them on the show. Madison and your Parker doing some really cool shit. But this is these are questions that actually need to be asked. So I appreciate that ask. And it's the article wasn't shared a lot. I will say that. And that surprised me as well, because usually women's hockey people, they're a rowdy bunch and they love these kind of stories. I don't know if it was just so busy that weekend because there's a lot of sports happening. March is truly madness. And this was no exception. 
I think it's so important to talk about it and kudos, kudos to Alex for that reporting. And look, like we, we talk about this on the show, like with money, with capitalism comes all the problems that capitalism brings. And just because like we want women's sports to have more money doesn't mean we stop calling people out for their shit, you know? Very quickly, Shireen, I did read somewhere that there was going to be another meeting like between the two groups the PHF and the PWHPA well I think uh, from what I understand from some women's hockey insiders are continuous meetings but the thing is that the PHF sometimes makes statements and makes comments publicly whereas the PWHPA will not say anything until all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed so therein lies the difference there's not anything solidified to say in hockey media and particularly Jeff Merrick reports a lot on this, you know, we'll just report whatever's happening because that's what hockey media is supposed to do. Just report on something, even if there's nothing concrete. So I think we're seeing a little bit of that. Whereas the PWHPA, you know, they're, a lot of their players are coming back from the Olympics and doing Olympic responsibilities, but also they just had an incredibly successful uh, another showcase in Montreal in, in the Bell Centre, which is huge. They're having showcases constantly. They're doing more things. And so they're busy. So we'll find out when there's something we need to know that's like true. And there's a lot of uh, the PHF is still looking for a commissioner. I think that's something to also be said about um, sustainability and consistency here. That's extremely important when building a model of anything. And I know Tyler Taminia came from baseball and she, you know, was really good and put everything into it. But ultimately, and it wasn't a rift. And I know this for a fact, it wasn't a rift. The reason why she left, she left for personal reasons. And I think women's hockey deserves and the PHF has some incredible hockey and deserves that consistency. And money coming in is great. But as the illustrious Biggie Small said, more money, more problems. Absolutely. Uh, you know, thank you for that. Uh, Jess. There were things happening in tennis at March, too. Tennis has its own version of March Madness with the Indian Wells Miami double. What happened? Iga Spiatek. That's what happened. <laughs> uh, she won Indian Wells and then the Miami Open. It's a back-to-back -back sweep that's called the Sunshine Double. This is a really hard thing to do, which is clear from the short list of women who've actually done this. Iga is only the fourth ever, joining Steffi Graf, Kim Kleisters, and Victoria Azarenka. It's a hell of a list there. But she's also the youngest to ever do it. She's 20 years old. She's on a hell of a tear right now. That win in the final of Miami put her current winning streak at 17 matches. She also won the Cutter Total Energies Open, which I'd never heard of before, which means she swept the first three WTA 1,000 titles of the season. No one has ever done that. The WTA 1,000 titles are basically the next level down from the Grand Slams. These are tough tournaments to win. In fact, only three players have ever won three or more consecutive WTA 1000 tournaments in a single season. Those other two are Serena, who won four in a row in 2013, and Wozniacki, who won three in a row in 2010. Wild. We're now going to move into the clay court season. And Sviatek's breakthrough on tour happened in 2020 when she won the French Open. She's good on clay is what I'm saying. So we should see more of her going into this clay season. One of the fun things from Miami that I did want to spotlight is she defeated Osaka 6-4-6-0 in that final, you know, which was amazing for Naomi to get to the final in Miami after everything that happened in Indian Wells and all the discussion about her strength and mental health and blah, 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 blah. Clearly, she's still a phenomenal player. But the two of them have talked now about like that this may be a rivalry 
in the making, which is very exciting. I would love for these two young women in tennis to have a rivalry. Uh, they both have, at this point, won a match against the other. Both matches were won in straight sets, Osaka in Toronto in 2019, and now Iga in Miami. So that's like, I would say Iga is the story of March tennis. Yeah, and you know, Ash Barty retired, and it's like women's tennis is we're gonna be okay, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> we miss you, Ash, but like, uh, we're all good. Just I want to ask about Serena. Like, I've seen Serena in public in different functions. She was actually at Brooklyn Beckham's wedding this past weekend, which is important with for Venus. everybody to know. Yes, with Venus. Um, What's going on with Serena and playing? Yeah, that's a great question, Shireen. Uh, so there was a ton of speculation just this last week. Simona Halep announced that Patrick Mortoglu, famously Serena's coach since, I think, 2012, that he would be Simona's full-time coach. This is the first time that he's taken on another tennis player full-time since he started coaching Serena in 2012. He's kind of done like um, consulting work with other tennis players, but this this felt different. And so there immediately became a discussion about what this meant for Serena's return. Uh, Moritoglu wrote in his statement, quote, I had a conversation with Serena and the door opened for me at least short term to work with someone else. What does that mean, Patrick? Uh, almost in the wake of that, Serena went onto Instagram stories. It was super weird. I will like you know, my love for Serena is unending, but also she was at a Bitcoin conference standing in a room with Aaron Rodgers and just like everything about that is hard for me to say out loud. But she hinted that she would be back at Wimbledon. And then she had a second post on social media hinting at it. She hasn't played since the first round of Wimbledon in 2021. She had that leg injury and went out like four or five games into the first round. You know, she turns 41 in September She's got to be coming to the end here. I will cry. I'm going to cry, everybody, about that when that happens. Uh, but it's so it's not clear, like, what's actually going on with her at this point in time. But it looks like we might see her this summer. I hope we do. Me too. And tennis is a co-ed sport. <laughs> did, anything, did, did anything happen with the men? Uh, <laughs> I will say, honestly, I don't know a ton about the men's side right now, but I feel like all I keep hearing about is there's this young Spaniard. He's 18. His name is Carlos Alcaraz. He actually won the Miami Open. He went to the semifinals at Indian Wells where he lost to Nadal. Um, Nadal then lost to Taylor Fritz in the final. So I guess Taylor Fritz is good now. Um, but in a piece for the New York Times, Christopher Clary wrote of Alcaraz, quote, now, depending on how he does at the clay court tournaments in Europe ahead of the French Open, Alcaraz could arrive at Roland Garros as a favorite which is just a wild sentence to me. Um, please don't ask me about Djokovic. I do not know what is going on with him. I don't know if he'll be able to play. I assume he'll be able to play at the French Open. I don't know. I don't know. Medvedev, I remember hearing he was briefly number one, struggled at the Miami Open, fell back to number two, and then he had some kind of surgery. So he's going to be out at the beginning of the clay court season. Um, so I guess there's we're going to find out a lot on the men's side on the in the clay court part of this year you know Nadal he's old for a tennis player and he plays such hard the way he plays tennis is so hard on the body but you just can't count if he's playing tennis and he's gonna go to Paris it's just impossible to count him out too so that'll be interesting uh, my final tennis thought because I totally missed this I was supposed to be on the episode with Shireen and Amira 
that the bitches be laboring. And then I had COVID. So I was not able to chime in on the fact that all of the tiebreakers will be the same at all of the Grand Slams. And I just want to say it's good. And I love it. And I hate when matches go on forever. I think it's bad for the tennis players. Most of the time, it's pretty boring for spectators. Everyone will bring up like Federer and Nadal in 2008 at Wimbledon, which is true. But to me, that's just like the exception that proves the rule. Um, The fact that we all can name like the one that's good. Um, So thrilled. Thank you to the Grand Slams for making the Jessica Luther rule about tie breaks. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This week uh, for the interview, uh, we have Jackie Powell of Bleach Report and The Next to talk all things WNBA draft. With the first pick in the 2022 WNBA draft, the Atlanta Dream select Ryan Howard from the University of Kentucky. It's time for the burn pile. I'm going to start. This is a story that I'm going to be honest, there's some conflicting reports about. So, but I want to take a overarching big picture burn to it. So the reports that have come out saying that at Grambling State University, the new head volleyball coach, Chelsea Lucas, decided to cut the entire team. (laughs) So take away all the scholarships and basically start from scratch. Um, There's since been the athletic director has said, well, maybe she allowed four to five to stay. And then the others had a chance to try out to keep their spot. But what we do know is that after just three practices as the head coach, she was hired in February and it is not we're not in season for volleyball that she sent the entire roster scrambling. Um, There are a lot of people incredibly, obviously, upset about this, upset about the turmoil that this has put so many of these uh, students into, financially, personally, emotionally. uh, You know, we're we're talking so much about the transfer portal in women's basketball right now uh, and men's basketball. And the transfer portal, it always has these really high numbers in it. And... Um, there's been some rule changes lately by the NCAA to make it easier for athletes to 
join the portal. And there's all this navel gazing and all this, oh, kids just can't take it places. And oh, kids, you know, need to stick it out places. And the second there's a problem, kids just go into the portal. They don't fight through it, blah, blah, blah. I'd like to say the whole thing, of course, some of these kids are going to make bad decisions about whether into the transfer portal or not. They're kids. And also, we all make the wrong choices sometimes. That's the whole point of it being a choice. But none of this takes away the fact that the transfer portal is one of the most necessary things in college athletics right now. Um, As we've seen, there are no protections for these players at the schools where they are. These volleyball players at Grambling, they're on just one year-by-year contracts. A new coach comes in, everything about their future is thrown up for grabs. So uh, I'd like to burn just this system and also burn anyone. I'm not saying you can't criticize a player's decision to enter the transfer portal or decide whether or not it was a good thing or a bad thing for them to move colleges. But you are no longer allowed to question whether or not they should have that choice and whether or not that flexibility should be granted. So let's just burn this whole fucking system and especially whatever's going on at Grambling State right now. Burn. Shereen? Yeah, just a trigger warning for racial abuse and, you know, against children. Um, I just wanted to say this, that, you know, I'm wrapped up in hockey in a lot of ways. And although I try to surround myself with joy and do the work, there's always these pieces and stories that come out and they live on. A young black hockey player named David Goodwin, who is from Gatineau, Quebec, plays for Le Volier d'Almer in a Bantam BB league. This report came from CBC from Alexander Benet, and he reported that David was explaining that he had been called the N-word constantly all season. He was compared to African jungle animals. And I'm, I'm pretty sure they're trying to say that they just made monkey chants at him and, and, and did that kind of thing. It's just, it's not just that this happens. It's that, you know, this was the only story about that. It didn't come out in French media it, as much. And I, so I do really appreciate the reporting on this because it matters. It needs to be documented. These type of stories actually do need to be chronicled because otherwise it's really easy for clubs to not be held accountable. And his mom was interviewed as well. His mother's white. And she said, she, I can't even explain the look on his face. He was not sad. It was just shocked. And that hurt so much to think about. Like you can't protect your child from any type of racist abuse. And it was ongoing and little has been done. Um, Now, as a result of that reporting, and this came out in another tweet, that other black and racialized players have come forward saying the same thing. So this is what we know, that when this is chronicled, it opens the doors to other people coming forward and feeling like there is a place and a space. Because maybe one of the reasons people don't disclose this happens is that, A, the media won't care because it's predominantly white, straight, able-bodied, and male. And then the other part is it may not be safe or there may not be support around it. And that is, I cannot underline that enough, that the lack of support for racialized young men and black men in particular or indigenous men is staggeringly low. And, you know, the excuses come out and I'll speak about this uh, more, but yesterday I was, I moderated a panel of black women in hockey and Dayton O'Donoghue, who was a 16 year old black hockey player said that when faced with that, clubs and teams often say they're young, they're learning. 
they're young, they're learning. It's okay. You know, we want people to be able to grow, but yeah, but also be accountable for what the actions are done. So education is a piece. Absolutely. Unlearning is a piece, but you know what? What about the piece of the young men who are victimized here? What about the ones who are, you know, the receiving end of this type of abuse? It's horrible. And it it, it destroys and severs ties with this. Like it's so I cannot say this enough. You cannot help what sport you fall in love with and that your God-given talent is that you're good at hockey. Does that mean like you, you get this? And this is something that Canada is so fucking unwilling to address. And people are so protective of hockey. Oh, hockey is not the problem. It's just one bad apple. You know what? Fuck that. This is a part of hockey culture. It saddens me. It enrages me. And I, like, I feel my heart goes out to these players They just love this game and they're good at it. That's not their fault. Like, and the fact that other young white men are not being held accountable. And believe you me, I am sure that those racist adages and commentary didn't just come from the players. It breeds at home. Their parents are speaking like this. There's no question in my mind that that commentary also came from the stands. So check that, you know, figure yourselves the fuck out. And I want to, I'm sorry, I'm swearing. I know it's Ramadan, but like, please. Allah hates racism too, so I think we're good. So anyways, all the support for David and all the young players out there who are struggling with this. There are places that hockey loves you for sure, and I just want to take this and I want to burn it all down. Burn. 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 Jess. On Sunday, April 3rd, Madison Shanley sang the national anthem before the Portland Timbers hosted the LA Galaxy. She wore a bright red shirt with the words, You Knew, in white capital letters. The shirt was created by the Rose City Riveters, supporters of Portland Thorns FC, the NWSL team. I feel like our listeners are probably already familiar with why Shanley would choose to wear this shirt, but just in case, you knew is a phrase the supporters groups for both the Timbers and the Thorns have been directing at the organizations and their owner, Merritt Paulson, after reporters at The Athletic reported last year that after the Thorns learned that the coach in 2015, Paul Riley, sexually coerced two players, they quietly let him leave. He eventually went on to coach other teams. More recently, the Timbers never reported to the MLS that one of their players, Andy Polo, had been cited for grabbing his wife's wrist. Polo's wife also says the Timbers pressured her to drop the charges. Shanley, who says she is a survivor of sexual assault and domestic violence, has performed the national anthem for both the Thorns and the Timbers many times over for more than a decade. She recently told ESPN that the Polo case was particularly hard for her, mirroring her own experiences. But why am I burning this? Well, 20 minutes before Shanley was to take to the pitch to perform, her father called her. Her dad, Terry, is buddies with Timber's president of business, Mike Golub. And Golub told Terry that Madison wearing the shirt was a middle finger to the organization. Golub did not want her to wear the shirt. Shanley told the Oregonian, quote, When I heard that my dad had been contacted, I was like, what in the actual patriarchy is this? I am a 27-year-old woman. About 10 minutes before she was to walk on the field, Golub spoke to her directly, wanting to know if she really knew about what had happened, if she had educated herself. Shanley said she told him that she had done her homework. And she told ESPN, quote, I was firm in my decision, and I told him that I was willing to risk my relationship with the organization if that's the consequence of my action. This is a wild series of events. Had they left her alone and done nothing, most of us would probably never have heard about any of this. But instead, now we have yet another example of how the front offices of these teams don't have a handle on how to handle this criticism. They just want everyone to be quiet, even though that is literally part of the overarching problem in these organizations. 
I'll just end with Shanley's own words. Quote, If the organization were to apply the energy they're using to silence their followers, including me, to instead hold people accountable, I think that would be the better option for the greater good. It seems that they're applying a lot of energy to denying claims. It seems really counterintuitive that the organization put out their initiatives, which is clear about presenting an opportunity for people to use their voice and get their feedback. But when I use my platform and I try to give my feedback, I'm urged not to. It's a really confusing message. It's counterintuitive to their initiatives that they're presenting to the public. So let's just burn all of this. Burn. Burn. After all that burning, uh, let's lift up some torchbearers. Though we want to start by saying rest in peace to Dwayne Haskins, the 24-year-old Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback and superstar at Ohio State who died over the weekend. Steelers wide receiver Chase Claypool tweeted about Haskins, writing, I spent your final moments with you, and I can't help but think about how selfless you were in those moments. All you cared about was making sure that everyone around you was okay, and I can't thank you enough for that. You are what I strive to be. All right, our honorable mentions and torchbearers this week, Jess. Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson was confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. She is the first black woman ever to be appointed to the highest court in the U.S., a true torchbearer. Mm. Shereen? <sighs> Stephanie Labe. She played her final match for Canada this weekend. The Olympic gold medalist goalkeeper was nicknamed the Canadian Minister of Defense. Like her Wikipedia was changed within minutes of them winning the gold. It wasn't me. Uh, she played for 14 years. She was subbed off the field during the match with Nigeria in the first minutes of the second half and received a standing ovation from 20,000 people in the crowd. Um, as a member of the Canadian women's national team, Labe had 86 appearances, 81 starts, 44 clean sheets, third most all-time in the program's history. Um, it is an honor. She is an absolutely exquisite person. She is truly a gem and part of the storied history of the Canadian women's national soccer team. And she will be dearly missed. But we will see her on the scene. I have a feeling that she'll be around on the scene. But it's a well-deserved break. And one of the things I do want to add about Labe is she's so open about her struggles. She penned a really beautiful essay when she announced her retirement. Uh, I think it's geo-blocked in the States, but you can watch it on Instagram. And she talked about her struggles with mental health as well. But she talked about connections and community is what kept her in women's soccer for all these years, community and connections. We feel that. Gonna miss you, Labe. Janice Petty John is the first woman hired for a full-time football position at Howard University, holding the positions of assistant director of football operations and the director of on-campus recruiting. Here's the part that kills me. She's only 22 years old. She's <laughs> 22? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to go back to bed now. Um, Shireen? God, I'm not 22. 16-year-old uh, Anna Davis won the Augusta National Women's Amateur, where she shot a three under 69 to finish at one under and won by a single stroke. Jess, I know this is special. Kelsey Whitmore, a member of the U.S. Women's National Baseball Team and a dual-threat pitcher outfielder, signed with the Independent Atlantic League Staten Island Ferry Hawks. <laughs> Incredible name. As Howard Megdal said in his piece for Sports Illustrated, this is the highest level attained by a woman in professional baseball in more than a generation. And I'll just note, Kelsey is 23 years old. I first interviewed her 
when she was 17. So when I saw that she's still just 23, I was like, how I've known of her for so for what feels like a really long time. Uh, she's a she's been phenomenal and been breaking barriers in baseball for girls and women uh, for many years now. So this is thrilling. Uh, can I get a drum roll, please? Our Torchbear of the Week friend, the show, flamethrower Ari Chambers, who, look, we just want to continue to um, give out the flowers to her. She was named the Dawn Staley 2022 Excellence in Broadcasting honoree. Um, Ari gave a beautiful, beautiful speech. Um, I was on the live stream to watch her receive the award, and she said, I wanted these athletes to feel seen, and I wanted to pour into the game that poured into me. And how full circle is it for Dawn Staley, the woman I grew up loving, seeing me and wanting the same for me? It's been really special to kind of get a front row seat to what Ari's built over the years. And um, she's nowhere near done building. Um, So uh, we will continue to watch and root her on over here at Burn It All Down um, and drag her on the show from time to time. and uh, I'll let Dawn Staley finishing this up with a clip for why uh, she gave this award to Ari. Like your your energy is um, contagious. Um, it is it is tireless. Um, it is. I mean, you 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 take on all of it—the good, the bad, the ugly—and you fight for our game. Okay, what's good? Anyone? Shireen? Oh, you know I'm ready. You know I'm ready. (laughs) I had the absolute honor of moderating the first Black Women in Ice Hockey panel ever. Wow. It was a collaboration between Black Girl Hockey Club and the MLSE Foundation Maple Leafs and Launchpad. Uh, It was held at the MLSE Launchpad, which is an absolutely incredible community space in downtown Toronto. It serves, um, you know, different communities, racialized communities, poor communities, everybody, the folks that work there. I mean, I'm spoiled on Burn It All Down. I think our collaboration is a shit. This is the only other time outside of that experience where collaboration has worked in this way. Actually, that's not true. I've had a couple, but this was up there is all I'm trying to say. It was way up there. Um, Sarah Nurse was on the panel. Yes, the first black woman to ever win a gold medal in ice hockey. Soraya Tinker plays for the Toronto Six. Dayton O'Donoghue, who was a 16-year-old scholarship winner with the Black Girl Hockey Club. And Regan Subin, who is with TSN Media. Um, just incredible. And it was such an honor for me to be there and hold that space and to facilitate this discussion. Renee Hess has been in town. We've been tearing through Toronto. Renee is uh, the founder of Black Girl Hockey Club and a very dear and close friend. And she's been on the show. And we were up to our usual shenanigans, went to a Raptors game on Friday night, went to center court, which she so cutely said, are we going to center ice? Which I thought was like hysterical. And because she thinks in hockey terms, right? And she's like, are we going there after the second intermission? I'm like, it's called halftime. Yeah. It was really cute. Like just spending time with her is a blessing because she lives in California. So I don't get to see her a lot. Um, I went to a spa on Friday with her, which is not something I've done in years. And to take a step back, and I've been on a grind. Y'all know that I've been working my ass off for like literally years to take a step back from this and to try to get my body to slow down. I've had like a physical response. Like it's, it's not accustomed to being taken care of in this way. So it was really nice and it's a lesson. Um, 
in addition to trying to scour the internet for Brooklyn Beckham's wedding photos, which were tightly guarded because they're being sold to Hello Magazine and possibly People Magazine, I haven't been able to see. Um, I did get a glimpse of Bax and Posh and even Harper's dress, their daughter, but can't see the bride and groom, Nicola Peltz, and Brooklyn got married. Oh, Vogue has it. Vogue has it up already? Okay. Mm -hmm. So Vogue Mm -hmm. has it. It wasn't going to be Hello. It was going to (laughs) be Vogue. Um, There's some more really cool things coming up. I'm working on a feature right now for Greenline T.O., just busy, but also, you know, trying to keep up with fasting and incorporating that because it's kicking my butt this year. So that's what's good. Awesome. That is quite the list. I love you. Uh, <laughs> Jess? We shouldn't let her go first in this section. <laughs> uh, American Prodigies, this is week eight of nine. Uh, so next week will be the final week that we will have an episode out, which is so bittersweet, but incredibly proud of this project. Um, I will be at the University of Idaho on Tuesday evening doing a talk on journalism and social justice. So I'm not thrilled that there will be snow on the ground (laughs) while I am there. Uh, When I agreed to go to Idaho in the spring, I asked what was the latest that I could go (laughs) in hopes that I wouldn't be uh, in the snow, but it did not work out that way. So, uh, but I'm always excited to go onto campus and and talk. Students really, um, they often give me energy and remind me why I'm doing this work. And then the final thing is that I asked my trainer at my gym, Amalia, shout out to Amalia every time, uh, to teach me how to do the clean and jerk actual weightlifting. And so we have started that process and I'm now working on what are called power cleans where you do the bottom part of that, where you pull the bar off the ground and get it up to your shoulders. Um, it's kicking my butt. I hate front squats. And like when you do a front squat, you literally are pushing the bar like into your throat as you're holding it. And I've never been a fan, but that is such an important thing when you're doing the clean and jerk. So, uh, Amelia said, it's the perfect exercise for me. And you guys will understand when you start, the clean and jerk, you can't think about it. You can think about it up until the moment that you start it. And then you just have to go with it. Uh, because if you think too much, you will not do it correctly. You will get in your own head and in your own way, which is literally like my life in a microcosm. So it's a good exercise for me mentally as much as physically. So that's been good. Awesome. I don't have much this week. You know, the women's final four was phenomenal, but um, I'm grateful that I I can rest and that's kind of it. And I wish that everyone had jobs that had flexibility and um, time to rest. I don't necessarily get paid sick days, but, you know, being my own boss, I can warp some things. So I'm grateful for that and grateful for all of you. All right, this week on the watch calendar, uh, Challenge Cup, NCAA Gymnastics Natty Champ is coming up. And then I know the NBA playoffs begin. Uh, so Raptors are going to the playoffs. Uh, that is the Canada team, in case you did not know. And... Um, <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. This episode was produced by Tressa Versteg. Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. We are part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, and rate. Please rate the show uh, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn. We've got show links and transcripts on our website, burnitalldownpod.com. 
And there's also a link to our merch at our bonfire store. Once again, you can find that all at burnitalldownpod.com. Thank you to our patrons. Uh, your support literally makes all of this possible. If you want to become a sustaining donor, visit patreon.com slash burnitalldown. In honor of our beloved Brenda, burn on and not out. And I saw you fall.